The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Roger, I sound particularly thunderous. <laughs> uh, this is, evening we'll be looking at verse 6, uh, but as per usual or is, is becoming usual, I'd like to read the chapter. The Word of God says to his people tonight, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, and it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, as we've been walking through uh, a passage of Scripture, which uh, I trust I'm not the only one who's found it terribly convicting, we've uh, been looking at what the Scripture calls us to as people who are to be specially marked by love. As I, think, I think it bears repeating about every time we revisit this. We are called as God's people to be a people who are known by the way that we love each other. So there, there needs to be something about the way that we love one another, the way that we love our neighbors, and even the way that we would then love our enemies that it would be so radically different that the world would see it, scratch their head over it, and then say, there's no earthly or worldly explanation for this. They really must have something. Maybe what they say about being new creatures in Christ has something to it because there's no explanation for why they would love like this. That, that, that's, what, that, that's what the earmark of a Christian should be, is the way that we love. And, and as we've kind of walked our way through various elements of love, uh, several, I guess, uh, convicting things have risen to the surface. But 
One thing that we, I don't think, have looked at as of yet is that our emotions or, or the things that we love uh, reveal in our hearts the things that we treasure. I'm sure you've heard Pastor Brian say before that, uh, hopefully I don't misquote it, that'd be embarrassing. It, it's something to the, to the degree of love is a good barometer and a bad guide. I'm sure he'll correct me if that's loosely incorrect. It, it should not be the thing that guides your life, but our loves or our emotions are good barometers in telling us the things in our hearts that we cherish. So if I could give a, a, a quick illustration, if we cherish peace and quiet at the end of a day, and then when you enter your castle and peace and quiet are not the things that you find and you respond irritably or angrily, well, well is not, or, or don't those emotions tell you a little bit about the things you love and what you're willing to do to acquire them? Or you could look at it the other side, and that would be kind of looking at the negative uh, expression of emotions, but if we were to look at the things that cause joy, what do you rejoice in or joy in? If I, if I could make an English noun into a verb, which is something I'm sure we all like doing from time to time just for fun. Uh, if we could make that word into a verb, what do we joy in or rejoice? I guess that implies previous joy, but what do we joy in? That tells us something about where our heart is. If I get wildly more passionate about, I was going to use baseball to make fun of it, but I just can't even imagine me getting excited about baseball. Your favorite sports team, who are people that you're never going to meet, who are playing also people you're never going to meet, and you get more loud and noisy and zealous in that scenario than you would, oh, say, on a Sunday morning when we're singing to the King of Kings. If you do the second one quietly and you're up off the couch pounding your fists and hopefully yelling celebratory things, not not bad things, uh, at your television screen, would not those joys tell you something of where your heart is? It's quite a great diagnostic tool if we actually use it for that purpose. Well, Paul wants to surface, for oddly enough, for the first time in his discussion on love, the topic of emotions. Now, we probably would have started there. Paul doesn't start with love is a feeling, love is an emotion. He actually says, uh, well, first, love is uh, necessary. If you don't have it, you don't have anything. And then he goes, all right, by second uh, topic or of importance with regards to love, here's how love, and it wouldn't have been our top pick, here's how love suffers. You're like, okay, now he's going to get to the emotions. And he goes, no, uh, here's what love suffers seeks. Here's like, here's love's mission. Here's what it's intent on. Here's what it doesn't pursue. It doesn't pursue self and insist on its own way. And then here's how love deals with wrongs. I mean, none of those would have made my top 10. Hey, let's talk about that with regards to love list. 
but they make Paul's list. Here's how love acts and responds in difficulty, and here's how it works, and here's where it's driving. And only now in this part of the text does he say, here's actually uh, an element of love's emoting or affecting or the way that it finds joy in some things, and conversely, what it does not find joy in. Using the barometer of the emotions then to diagnose true biblical love, finally here in verse 6. Now, Jonathan Edwards, who I've said over and over again, I will quote liberally because his book, um, Charity and Its Fruits, there it is, is one of the most fantastic books on the topic of love, specifically on this uh, chapter in the Bible. Edwards says, it is as if Paul had said, I've mentioned many excellent things that love has a tendency to and shown how it is contrary to many evil things, but I need not go on to multiple particulars for, in a word, love is contrary to everything in life and practice that is evil and it tends towards everything that is good. So it's it's as though... Paul, and again, we're we're reading a little bit into the text here. It's almost as though Paul says, I could go on and on and on and on about all the stuff love isn't into. It's not into resentment, envy. It is patient. It is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's like after a few verses that he goes, all right, I'm just going to give you a huge guiding principle. It, it, it rejoices in righteousness and truth, and it does not do that with evil. Now, you could run almost any iteration and ask, is it love? It's like my kids love this show. I, say, I shouldn't come up with analogies right off the cusp. Called, is it cake? And the plot line is the same every time. They try to fool you. It's all about deception. So obviously my kids are all into it. And they, they try to cut things that look like cake or don't look like cake. And so you could, you could test love. Like, is it love? And run it through this iteration. Well, does it rejoice in truth? If so, yeah. Does it rejoice in evil? Then no. You could run every then iteration of love in your life through that test and see, does it come out the other end victorious or does it fail? So we want to consider this theme under, I think it's three, yep, three headings tonight. The first is the negative aspect. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. There's not a whole lot of words here in the English text to unpack. Verse six, it, love, does not rejoice at the ESV says wrongdoing. You know my love of the ESV. However, I feel like wrongdoing, feel like, that sounds squishy. I believe that wrongdoing is too narrow. I believe it's too narrow for one particular reason. Number one, I don't think it fits the word that's used fully enough. The other is that it only takes into account actions. Whereas wickedness and evil has much more involved with it than simply the things that I do. So the NASB does get it right when it says 
unrighteousness. Because that would then kind of be big enough to wrap its arms around evil, both in the things that I do or the things that I think or my motives. It, it actually, and it fits the, the word that Paul uses, I think, in a more full sense. So certainly wrongdoing is involved. But there's a lot of evil out there that doesn't necessarily have to act and move and work for it to qualify as evil. It, it resigns within us. The idea is not, the word he uses is, it does not rejoice in not righteousness or unrighteousness is how we make it in English. So to know what unrighteousness is, it might be helpful to take a step back and say, like, well, let's trim the not or un off the front and say, well, what is righteousness? Maybe if we defined righteousness, that would help us better understand what not righteous was, if that makes sense. So one way that we might understand righteousness, right acting, right behaving, right thinking, would go something like this. Righteousness is when we say, do, or think something that reflects or is in accord with God's character, his person, his glory, and his standards. So so whatever the thought, word, action, deed, or motive is, is it in agreement with God's character? So again, it, it has the source, not in the person doing it, but in God. God's going to be that ultimate standard of what is righteous and therefore what is not him is not righteous. So is the thought, action, word, deed, or motive in agreement with or according to God's character, who he is and what he's like, his person, his glory, and his standard, or we could say it a slightly different way, his law as revealed to us, his people. That's what we would kind of begin to sketch in an outline for what is righteousness. So, if you could just help me negate that, what is unrighteousness? Well, it would be any thought, word, action, deed, or motive that did not accord with God's person, God's character, his nature, his glory, or his revealed law. You might say, that would be a big list. It's huge. Yeah, it actually is. So this would have massive sweeping implications, or I could have just started with Edward's lovely, very simple explanation of what Paul means here. By unrighteousness, Paul means everything that's sinful in life and practice. You're like, you should have started there. Yeah, but it wouldn't have been as fun to get there. So Everything that is sinful, again, that has the idea of God's law and character being revealed in life and the way life is lived out. So if we were to plug that in, I know you're like, man, this is a long walk for what I'm hoping is a decent-sized drink of water. Love doesn't rejoice in that. This is going to have huge, on the front of it, it looks so simple. And then you just get a few layers in, you go, oh my, this is huge. Love does not rejoice in anything that is sinful in life and practice. 
most of what flies under the banner of love just got torpedoed in our minds, hopefully. Well, you might say, well, maybe there's a way around it. What does he mean by uh, rejoice? Maybe there's some wiggle room there. Well, I think it's, there's nothing really to unpack, to find or take joy in, to, um, to have a love and affection for, to be drawn to, for to be a, a source of delight or satisfaction or happiness. All of those would be ways in which we'd use that word, rejoice, an extremely common word in the Bible. Love doesn't rejoice, find its happiness, its delight, its pleasure in anything that is sinful in life or practice. Think about the implications that has on biblical love just for a few minutes. And if you're like, I can't think of anything. All right, run a few relationships through that iteration. Husbands with your wife, wife with your husbands, in-laws with your in-laws, whichever one it works on, think about it. If I love this person... I don't rejoice in things that are sinful in their life or practice. If I could think about, so loving is going to require two parties, me and someone else, right? So if I don't love or if I don't rejoice in that, what does that mean? Well, it means I wouldn't rejoice in the sin of other people. You might say, like, well, who would do that? We don't really do that. I hope not. But uh, there are times where don't we vicariously get some pleasure out of someone else's sin? Maybe we look across the yard and go, like, I know I shouldn't do that too, but, man, from a distance, that looks good. Hopefully this is not, like, a really common thing. If it's a really, really common thing that's concerning, but that would be like a vicarious love of someone else's sin. You might say, well, okay, let's, I'm sort of encouraged. I don't struggle too often or at all with that. Here would be the harder one. Love doesn't rejoice in someone else's failings. That would be more on the self-righteous side of things, wouldn't it? I know we, I know we all, and I don't need hands raised or testimonies given, To be like, there are times where someone royally messes up and there's that sinful smirk in the heart. Stern on the outside, of course. We still smile like Baptists with the eyebrows. But on the inside, that that delight of, I knew it. I knew that would happen. Some... Odd little joy. Some, and I, I mean, chief among us, right? This is not something that, I, I mean, it's something that should be rare, but it's not as rare as it should be, where we would find joy in the way someone's wrecked their life. And we go, you know what, I knew that. Or I've even, uh, we could do it on a church level too, where we'd see churches going down the tubes and be like, yeah, I knew it. Yeah, see, see, that's what happens. Should be no rejoicing over such things. 
should be grievous when someone wrecks their life with sin. Should be grievous every time a church goes off the rails. It should be grievous every time we see sin flourishing in someone else's life. Like at no point should it like puff up self and be like, man, I got it dialed in. Love doesn't do that. Love sees that and just goes, ah, no, that shouldn't be. If love is seeking the good of others at expense to oneself, accompanied by affection, how could I rejoice in their sin? Another element of this, and just in case that one wasn't convicting enough, we shouldn't find joy in uh, when we have the opportunity or occasion to personally uh, point out their sin or stick it to them in a vindictive sense. Now, I was raised in a house where we meant it humorously. And seeing as my parents watch every Wednesday night, I need to walk carefully here. But it was always a joke, Mom, I know, that there are three of the most beautiful words in the entire English language when you hear it on someone else's lips aimed at you is, you were... You can finish it. Right. We savored those. It was like dessert when in the midst of a, some kind of a, confl- a conflict or confrontation, you were the victor and you got to hear on their lips those sweet words, you were right. And then in one of the occasions where I, it was very rare, where I happened to be accidentally right and my mom was wrong, and I said, Mom, those three words? And she goes, you weren't wrong. <laughs> they weren't as satisfying. They weren't as satisfying as the you were right. But we love to hear that, don't we? And it's not the truth won out. That's not why those words are like honey on the ears. Although that sounds sticky and mixing of metaphors. But it's, it's, that's not why we savor that. It's not like, wow, praise God, the truth really triumphed here in this. It's that I was right. And almost more importantly, you were wrong. And I'll like emphasize both of those again. Married couples, I'm sure that this never happens. <clears throat> if you can't say amen, say ouch. So, Uh, There's times where in marital conflict or disagreement or discussion, as we tell the kids, right? Um, Where where when you happen to be right, is there joy that it was you? Or was it just joy that, man, praise God that he navigated us to the right path? I'll take your laughter as confession, though I'm no priest. So this is the way that, I mean, we, we, are, we, should, we just need to be honest that this is often the way that we are. But we then quickly need to admit, you know what, but that's not the way it should be. And I'm not meaning like you can never have fun like with your spouse. I'm like, I was totally right and you missed it. <laughs> like there's times where there is that playfulness. But underneath the surface of the playfulness, isn't there, I don't know about doom, but (laughs) I guess we're getting real uh, transparent here tonight. But anyway, (laughs) 
under that surface, there's truth to it. You understand that with joking underneath the surface is what makes it funny is that there is truth under the surface. If something has no accord with truthfulness, it's just not funny at all. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It doesn't get drunk off the draft of being right. Just rejoices in being in accordance with truth. It doesn't find delight and pleasure in unrighteousness. Now we've talked a lot about what it is with other people, but there's, a, there's like an even more obvious application that means that I should not be finding joy in sin personally in myself. Isn't that like definition, like definitional of sin? I buy the lie that this path will be more satisfied than Jesus in obeying him. A true love for God, guess what? It doesn't lead me down that path. It doesn't go that direction. So should we, if we love God, drink deeply in the pleasures of the world? No, actually not. Should we entertain ourselves by watching sin unfolded before our eyes? No. We're listening to it sung about and heralded and rejoiced in and exalted. No. No, actually, love would curtail all of that. It really would. I, I get... And just as, as one illustration, I guess, a lot of the movies that are like romance, you know, boy meets girl kind of a, a plot line that you're forced to watch sometimes. There was one in particular, I won't mention its name, but it had at its heart an adulterous relationship as what would drive the romance. And just your thought instantly is like, we're not watching this. Why would, why, why would this be like, hey, look at this story. No one expected it. Like, who expects covenant breaking? Like, uh, no, 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 no. This is not something that we rejoice in. This is not something we put in front of our eyes. This is not something that, that love does. Doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. So secondly, what does it rejoice in? Well, very obviously, it rejoices in the truth. And so we want to consider love rejoices in the truth. Truth, or, excuse me, truth and unrighteousness are often juxtaposed one to the other in Scripture, often said as opposite sides of the spectrum. So as Jonathan Edwards describes or defines unrighteousness as everything that is sinful in life and in practice, he will then define truth as quite the opposite. Truth is everything that is good in life or all that is included in Christian and holy practice. So even the way that he defines them is going to be on their opposite ends of the spectrum. Love doesn't find joy in and rejoice in unrighteousness, but it does find joy in or rejoice in what is true. So that idea of truth being, you know, what is in accord with morality and justice and beauty and all of that would be included. And now it's, it's important to note at this point, because in verse 6 there might be some who would read into what does it mean 
with the truth. What is not meant is truth in a subjective sense, which probably should go by a different label than truth. We should call it preference or something else. But it's not saying love is, love rejoices in what's true to you. And what's true to you might be different than what's true to someone else. And so you got to find that person's truth. Like if they live in their own world that has its own set of truth, that's often la-la land. Truth is not, in this sense, being used subjectively. It's being used absolutely or objectively. There's truth and non-truth. Love rejoices in what's true. And that is true whether I believe it or not. And that's true whether you like it or not. And that's true whether you accept it or not. What's true is true by definition of it. And even if you don't like it, it's an, it's an opportunity for love to rejoice in that thing, right? So we'll, we'll run through maybe some... Uh, iterations of what that would look like. But it's interesting to note that Paul does not use the same exact word for joy or rejoice as, uh, in the first part of the verse as he does in the second part of the verse. The first part of the verse is just the, like the plain vanilla word or your verb for taking joy in. The second one that he uses, but rejoices, he takes a preposition and squishes it onto the front, which gives it a little bit different flavor and intensifies it. So the idea is love greatly rejoices, and you can even see the word with the truth. That's the preposition he squishes on there. Uh, He says love rejoices with, greatly rejoices, abounds, leaps, you could say, with joy. For the truth. This is not some like really strict Baptist, like, I am smiling. I am happy. You're like, how are you happy? Like, no, that's not it. This is like, oh, this is like a borderline charismatic kind of like joy that like it's got to say some stuff and move around a little bit to show that it's brimming with joy. Love rejoices in truth like that. Like it hollers and yells and stuff sometimes about that truth. It's a joy that you could say uh, is not easily or cannot be contained. That's what it does when it finds truth. It leaps with joy. It is not, and I think this is where we need to be... um, where we need to be well confronted a little bit, it is emotional or effectual or affectionate. It actually feels some stuff. Now, why do I need to say that to a group of Reformed Baptists? Well, it seems obvious, but we'll just spell it out anyway. If we were to write this, we'd be like, love knows what is true. Full stop. And we would think love's duty is over when it's got the charts dialed in and the confession like leather bound and hand uh, noted 
all the way through. Like we, we would say uh, love in its shining glory knows what's true. And is that, is that true? Well, yeah, it's true. You actually have to know truth before you can rejoice in the truth. But as Reformed folks, we often stop shy of the joy part and camp out just on that knowing part. Now, I trust I'm not splitting hairs on this, but true biblical Christian love is not emotionally uh, passive when it comes to what is really true. It leaps. It jumps. It has the excitement of the heart involved with that. Now, that's one of the reasons why, if we just make the jump quickly, then over to how we sing on a Sunday, we are very, very careful about the doctrine and the theology of everything that we sing. Like, we don't put things up on the screen to sing that hasn't gone through like multiple theological filters and sniff tests, if you can sniff theology. Like, we've, we've run through it. It's right. It's true. We know it. But is there that joy? Is there that leaping? Is there that, that robust, like up on your tippy toes when you're singing, singing? That's what Christian love does. In so many avenues, but when we sing on a Sunday morning, there should be that like, oh, I don't like sitting down. I got to stand on this stuff. Like that, that, that emotion, that affection that drives it. And when it's not there, praying that God would stir up zeal because he deserves it. Not for like any weird experience or like, I didn't get goosebumps today. I didn't worship. Like, no, praying that we'd be zealous for our God. Why? Love rejoices greatly in the truth. Now, that works on a lot of other levels as well. Uh, One of them would be that that joy or great rejoicing in truth would then weave its way into the way that we actually lived our lives. So, I'm going to read a... I know long quotes at 7.45 at night is not like our favorite thing to do, but hang in there, buckle up, and try to, because I think it's a fantastic quote from Mr. Edwards. He says, reason teaches that man's actions are the most proper test and evidence of his love. So we'll just pick it apart. The way that he lives will tell you what he loves. Already you're like, I feel like a trap is being set. It is. So if men are really convinced of the truth of the things that they're told in the gospel about an eternal world and the everlasting salvation that Christ has purchased for all that will accept it, it will influence their practice. If men are convinced of the certain truth of the promise of the gospel, which promises eternal riches and honors and pleasures, and if they really believe that those are immensely more valuable than all the riches and honors and pleasures of this world, they will for these forsake the things of the world. And if need be, sell all to follow Christ. 
Edwards is just simply mean at this point, it feels like, right? To say the way you live and what you love tells me a lot about you. So if the way that you come into worship is you're tripping on your lower lip because you this is just like strict duty, tells me a lot about you. Or the way you love your spouse in a selfless way, you treat it like, oh, this is the worst thing ever. I hate doing this. Um, that tells me a lot about you. Not just like me, it should tell you a lot about you. The way that Christian love should work its way out is in uncontainable joy for the truth. And in all areas and iterations where it finds that truth. So with a flourishing of another church, rejoicing. With your spouse being right, you can bear some crosses, rejoicing. With your mother-in-law, I don't know, that's, that's out there. But <laughs> with any version where truth is found, saying, Lord, thank you. That truth is triumphing in that life of the other person. You can see even where he would, if you run this iteration, why he says love doesn't envy. Totally makes sense. Why he says love isn't arrogant. Totally makes sense. Why he says love isn't rude. Totally makes sense. It actually comes back to this as its core key truth. Love does not rejoice in what is wrong or unrighteous, but love rejoices, leaps, shouts over what is true. Now, that should flow then quickly, and with only a few minutes left, into our third point. The Christian life or Christian love should then be marked. Now, this is where it's going to be rocket science. It should be marked by joy. The Christian life should be marked by joy. Now that might strike you as like an odd thing. You're like, I half expected you to say truth. Well, yeah, should the Christian life slash Christian love be marked by truth? Absolutely. Like it would be absurd to say anything else than that. But don't miss like the only two verbs. I know you guys love grammar. In verse six is joy as an action kind of word. So what what does that tell me about the way that our lives should be? Joyful. Just not joyful in the wrong stuff. Our problem is we're such backwards creatures. We get so joyful in a worldly sense over dumb stuff. And we're like just bored or serious faced over the best stuff. That needs to get just flipped around. Have nothing to do with the nonsense and joy-filled people. So, what does this mean as a, for a man or a woman who's maturing in Christ? More joy or less joy? More, obviously. 
inarguably. So when I go from being a young believer to like a middle-aged believer, what should I expect to see? Joy. And if I go from middle-aged believer to like seasoned, salty, vet caliber believer, what should I see? Even more joy. The problem, we have it all wrong. We expect these young believers who don't know squat, to, they're like, oh, they're really excited about the gospel and stuff. It'll wear off, kid. You're like, no. I want that to get deeper and bigger and better. I want them to hardly stay together in their skin because the joy in God's truth only grows and grows and grows. Some of the oldest saints that I know are some of the most joyful people I know. Sadly, that's not always the case. But I want it to be the case in my life. And I want it to be the case in your life. I, do, I have no interest in being a bunch of sour-faced Christians. I don't see that in Paul at all. Nowhere. I see Paul putting to the front of our, our minds, I in the text, joy rejoicing, exuberance over the truth in any iteration. So that would even mean like when I'm wrong and truth wins out, and as usually is the case, because my wife is right way more than I am, rejoicing. When I see other people flourishing around me, rejoicing. When I see other people taking uh, advantage of the wonderful opportunities that God puts in their life that are different than mine, rejoicing. When I see God growing people, rejoicing. When I get a chance to come in here on the Lord's day and sing till I'm hoarse, rejoicing. That should mark the Christian life. And if you're like, I think you're reading a little bit much into one verse, a little bit of reading in some stuff here. I appreciate the pushback. Let me Shove back with the psalm, Psalm 4, verse 7. You, this is praying to God, have put more joy in my heart than when there, I don't know who the they are, grain and wine abound. Who's the they or the there in that text? The world. So, I don't know about you, but the way I'm reading Psalm 4, David's kind of saying, if you look at what happens when the world has a bumper year with carbs, bread, are carbs a source of joy? And wine abound. God puts more joy than that in my heart. My joy in him, they can't hold a candle to that. In bumper years. Psalm 16, 11, you make me to know the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures. What an odd word to be using about communion with God. Actual pleasure, delight, joy in God's presence. Psalm 43, 4, when I will go to the altar of my God, to the God, my, here's like the, uh, an alternate reference for God or a name for God. To God, my ex. Exceeding joy, the joy that outjoys every other joy. 
It's in the Hebrew, I assure you. So, Psalm 119 and 111. Your testimonies are my inheritance forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I could go on and on and on just in the Psalms about the joy that God's people have when they are in loving relationship with God. The more truth the more joy. The more truth, the more serious we get. No, the more joy that exceeds and overflows in our life. He also describes in all the Bible, Christ as truth of very truth. So John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and what? truth. If you want a source of joy, and if, if real joy is found in truth, where would I find the fountainhead of all of that? The Lord Jesus Christ. In him I can find the very fountain of truth. So it would be fair to say that if Christ being the source of all truth, I would then have an infinite source of joy in him. Yeah, yeah, I think it would be very fair to say. John eight thirty two. you will know the truth and the truth will Set you free. Talking about the way that the Son sets us free. John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. It seems like the Christian life should be tracking on these two major lines. Growing in the truth and the knowledge of God and then a corresponding joy in the truth of God. Flowing to us from the gospel and then what we see in other people's lives as well. Brothers and sisters, we should be marked by joy in this life. And then our relationships that should be the recipients of biblical love should be growing in what as well? Joy. Joy in truth. Not joy in the wrong things, but joy in the true things, right? So as a married, God-fearing man or God-fearing woman, in loving covenant relationship to each other, what should we hope would be the result of decades together. Joy. Not old grouchiness. Joy. As parents who raise kids and grow in our relationship with our kids, sometimes I've seen just bitterness grab a hold and I've seen hurts fester into all sorts of just terrible things. What should be the trajectory of that? Joy. Yeah, we should actually be rejoicing in the truth that is in their, uh, like in, in, in that relationship. We should, and I get, and you might have all these exceptions like, well, what if this and what if that? Like, I understand that it's hard to have joy in the midst of a situation that's just marked with all sorts of unrighteousness. Absolutely. But striving with every fiber of who and what we are to cause truth to flourish and therefore as a result causing joy to flourish. We should be 
if we're, if we're like reformed, which would mean that hopefully we've got deep, thought, thoughtful, robust, time-tested doctrine, right? Hopefully we, we know some stuff. I'm hoping. What should that then correlate to in our life? We should be the most joyful people in the valley. Why? We've got the most truth. We know our God deeply. So that should result in the way that we live. We are forgiven people living under the reign of King Jesus, heirs with him, and inheritors of a kingdom that can't be lost. Why walk around all sour-faced? When that, that's just a slice of what's ours. We, we live life knowing that at the end of the day, I am going to be raised from the dead and live forever with him. That's, that is your inevitable future as a Christian. That should cause a deep joy that takes hold of the heart in all seasons. Doesn't mean life's not hard at times. Doesn't mean there's not seasons of deep grief and, and difficulty. But the dominant note in the Christian life ought to be joy. Yeah, we mix in some other notes in there. There's there's seasons of minors and declines. But that major motif that keeps surfacing and driving is joy. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that we would be a people who are marked by rejoicing in your truth. Oh God, help us to not take joy in unrighteousness. We confess we love things we shouldn't love. We rejoice in things we shouldn't rejoice in. Father, please prune and trim those away. And cause to flourish in our hearts a love for you, a love for your truth, and a resulting joy that the world would have no explanation for. We pray this in our Savior's great and mighty name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.